Okay, friends, I invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Uh, but before we do, let us... Uh, uh, I missed this last week, but I thought we should catch it this week. We should uh, recite together, um, take a, a moment in our church service to recite portions of uh, our catechism question to remind us the truths uh, of God's word in summary form. And the very first question, which gets to the very heart of our hope and our existence that we have in this life. And the question is this, what is our only hope in life and death. And the part in blue is the kids part. So let's say that one first. The answer is that we are not our own, but belong to God. And the full answer is, let's say these together, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, life and death to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so now let's turn to um, Revelation chapter 14. And 15, and um, we're continuing our series in, in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which is a vision by John, received by John, of kind of what reality is, not, not exclusively a depiction of the future, future events, although it does include some of that. It's really a vision of what's really truly happening um, Kind of in the spiritual world, even in the present and throughout history and into the present today. And so in Revelation chapter 14 and 15, we're we're in this interlude. We've seen this. Uh, the uh, this repetition of cycles of seven. We saw seven churches. We saw seven a scroll with seven seals. We saw uh, seven trumpets. We're going to be getting to the seven bowls in a little bit. And this is a, an interlude between those. And in this interlude, we have uh, also a series of seven kind of seven symbolic stories or symbolic histories that have spanned from chapter 12 all the way through to uh, chapter 14. And so today we're going to be looking at and we've looked at the the previous five in the the last couple of weeks. Today, we're going to be looking at the last two um, of these seven histories. And that is the seven angelic messengers beginning in chapter 14, verses 6 through 11. And then also uh, with the Son of Man in chapter 14, verses 12 through 20. And as we've seen, there was this begins in chapter 12 with uh, a woman who is the true spiritual Israel from whom will come a male child, which is Jesus, the Messiah. Um. Then there is a dragon, and this, of course, is a depiction of Satan who comes to try and destroy that Messiah. And that Messiah was taken up into heaven, which is referring to the ascension of Jesus Christ. And now the dragon starts to go after the other descendants of the woman, which is the church. And God seals and protects them. And then now we get to see what else is happening. And so I invite you to follow along as I read. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 20. Revelation 14, verses 6 through 20. Then I saw, and again, this is is John describing the vision that he sees from God. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. 
to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from all their labors for their deeds follow them then i looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand and another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. We're going to continue to read through verse four. Then I saw a sign in heaven Great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast with its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And this is the reading of God's word. Thanks be God. Let's pray. Father God, we come to a very um, troubling and difficult passage this morning. We're grateful that you, by
by your word, speak to us and speak truths to us. Give us hearts to receive and eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand. Give us hearts that will receive what it is that you have for us today. God, I pray that you would pour out your, your spirit that you've promised that you would send to help us to understand the words of Jesus. And God, I pray that your spirit would come and do his work of bringing conviction to our hearts. So we ask that you do that this morning. And God, give, um, give me words to, to say, to expound and clearly um, express what this passage means and what it means for us. We ask that you do this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen and amen. This is a, uh, as we prayed, it's a very tricky and difficult passage. Uh, it's not one I, I think that many people, if they were trying to create their own religion, would come up with on their own. Um, it has a very, uh, for that reason, a very divine feel to it. And so there's a couple of things I want us to focus on, uh, some truths I think we can glean from this passage as a whole. And that is there are two sides to the gospel. There are two sides to the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of grace. The unmerited, undeserved favor of the Lord Jesus Christ suffering and dying for us. To take the wrath of God for us. That's grace. But there's another side to the gospel too, and that is the side of, of judgment. The gospel is uh, both a gospel of grace and of judgment. Both are included in the same thing. Notice what it says in verses 6 through, through 7. The angel flying directly over said, With an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and people. And he says, Fear God. He's making an appeal to them. For them to heed this call, fear God, give him glory. And then he gives the reason, because the hour of judgment has come. What makes the good news of salvation, because that's what the word gospel means. It comes, it's an old English word uh, that means good news. What does uh, what makes this good news of salvation good? It makes it what makes it good is that we are saved. But in order to be saved, you're saved from something. What are we saved from? The answer, biblically, is ultimately, we're saved from God. We're saved from the wrath of God. So think about that for a moment. God, the good news of the gospel is that God is coming to save others from his righteous wrath against their sin and rebellion. So it's, it's good news. It's grace that he offers through faith in Christ, trusting in him, repenting of your old ways of rebellion against God, and then turning and trusting in Christ, who is himself God in the flesh, so that he could, we could be saved from God's wrath. So God has wrath, but he chooses to save people from his own wrath against their sin. 
So see the two-sidedness of this gospel. It's a gospel of grace, but, but for those who continue in their rebellion against God, it's a gospel that entails judgment. Now, I've heard many object. Why doesn't God just save us? Uh, why does God have to save us from himself? Why can't he just not issue his judgment? And why can't he just kind of stop being wrathful? Well, the answer then is then he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be fair. He would, in, a, in essence, be letting evil that is committed go unpunished. And anyone who thinks that God shouldn't be wrathful also hates the idea that uh, injustice is committed in the world and that it isn't being uh, meted out. There is a just God who is sees everything and knows everything and will judge all evil that is committed. I don't think there's a person in this room who does do who doesn't hate the idea of evil being committed somewhere in the world. You you could picture in your mind some sort of evil that is committed and it and it stirs you and it makes you angry and you want to cry out for justice. The biblical answer is that God will administer justice. But that means the punishment comes to everyone because he's going to do it fairly across the board. Great sins or small. That means you're, you're going to receive judgment unless you receive this offer of salvation that Jesus gives in Christ. That all who repent of their evil, great or small, can be forgiven all of that. So God has to be just, he has to punish sin, and yet in his love and his mercy, he offers his way of saving. So there's two sides to, to the gospel. And so there's the appeal, fear God, glorify him, worship the creator. And all of this is done through repentance of your sin and turning in faith to Christ. That's wonderful gospel news. And if you have if done this, Praise be to God. If you have it, I, I implore you to just take a moment and say, God, you're real. I know that you sent Jesus to save us. And I'm overwhelmed by this grace that you have shown us that he would suffer in my place. That he gets what he doesn't deserve so that I would get what I don't deserve. And so I turn from my sin and I receive Jesus and I follow him as Lord. If you have done that, praise be to God and angels are rejoicing in heaven. So there's two sides to the gospel. There's a side of grace but there's a side of judgment, and this brings us to the second one. The judgment is terrible. The judgment is terrible. Notice what it says in verses 14 through 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man. Now, if you've been through this Revelation series thus far, you would know he draws on the Old Testament quite a bit. The Old Testament prophets quite a bit, and Daniel in particular a lot. And in Daniel, we see, uh, Daniel sees the vision of one who is coming on the clouds, who's 
dressed in white and has gold crown and, and he's coming to judge the earth. And so what John sees here is um, this same picture. And in the Old Testament, that was kind of speaking forward about the coming, the second coming of Christ. John sees the same thing. He says he has a golden crown on his head and then he has this and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is a new element that's not in Daniel. And another came out, another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. And so this is reference to Jesus. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully right. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Okay, so this is describing the, the second coming of Christ. And there's actually two harvests that are depicted, depicted here. One is kind of the harvest of the grain that we just read about in verses 15 and 16. And then there's a harvest of grapes in verses 17 through 20. Verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had the authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine from the earth or of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So there's two harvests here. Now, both have uh, a, a an image of judgment conveyed with them. Some see these both as describing one judgment of just the unrighteous. For me, I kind of can see a distinction here between um, the deliverance, the judgment that will come when God delivers his people and saves his people. And then that uh, the corresponding event to that where, where God gathers together all of the unrighteous and brings them to judgment. I kind of can see a separation here. It could go either way, but uh, but one one of the couple of the reasons why I say that. Um, notice it's Jesus who does the first one, the one on the clouds who does the first one, verse sixteen, who has the sickle, and then it's one of the angels in the second. So there's kind of a, a two partness there. And then notice that in the first one, it's just described that the grain is reaped, but the second one adds this image of this great wine press for the grapes verses 19 and 20 so the angel swung his sickle across the earth gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of god and the wine press was trodden outside the city and blowed blood or flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia so i i think that you have uh, you have also um in John's Gospels, you have these pictures of Jesus describing this parable of the wheat and the weeds. And he tells the story about a, a farmer whose enemy comes and sows a bunch of weeds into his crop. And uh, his servants go, well, what should we do? This enemy has come and sowed these, uh, these weeds in, in your field. Should we go and try to pluck out the weeds? Which obviously you wouldn't have known about until the weeds started to sprout and grow up along with the grain. And... They come to him and say, should we do this? And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let, uh, let the uh, uh, ingathering of the weeds, when you're gathering in the, the wheat and the weeds, uh, if you were to go and gather the weeds, you would be uprooting the wheat before it's ready. So let both grow together until the harvest, he says. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds in first, bind them in bundles to be burned. And then gather the wheat into my barn. So I think maybe that's kind of, you have one harvest that's reaping both at the same time. 
and it's separating in that. Could be, could be not. Here's a question, though, that I've often got from people who are skeptical or just curious about why God hasn't judged evil now. Or I've heard it expressed this way. Why doesn't God wipe out evil now? My, my answer is that parable gives you the answer. Jesus is letting those who are committing evil and those who are sons of the kingdom to rise up together and he will sort them out at the end. Okay? We live in this period known as, as common grace. Where God is being gracious to all. And so here is what you. you I, this is what I think is happening here with the reaping of the grain. And the reaping of the, um, the, the grape harvest. But uh, I want you to notice this. And you can almost have like a, a, a movie rating. <laughs> um, kind of a warning on those verses. This wine press imagery. Um, is quite a gory description. Let me see if I've got a, a, a picture here. Um, here's an, a picture of an ancient wine press. This dates back to Jesus's day. And so they would gather together the wine or the grape harvest, and they would lay all of the grapes in the big square thing there where that kind of uh, big uh, thing is there. And they would that's a device to kind of crush the grapes. And so you'd have this kind of big, humongous pool of grape juice and grape flesh and stems and those kinds of things all getting together in that uh, section there. And the, the people who were uh, harvesting the grapes and making the wine, you'd have a whole bunch of people in there just stomping on it with their feet, right? Kind of reminds you of an old I Love Lucy episode, right? Where, you know, the stomping on the grapes. This is the ancient way of making grape juice. You take this grape and you stomp on it. You crush it. And the flesh gets torn apart and the juice gets separated and runs out. That whole thing is full. Now you can see the little hole that's over here. They would take stems and pieces and, and uh, uh, grasses and those kinds of things to filter out the, um, the particles on that side and it would be cut the stone so it would flow in here and so that's a vat for wine there and there's a vat for wine there do you guys know that this is the ancient way of making making wine and so when it uses this language of wine press this is supposed to be a very gory depiction of judgment it's it's pictured as as god's enemies being squashed crushed and even this imagery kind of it it starts to de describe this great wine press of the wrath of god and the wine press was trodden outside the city and then it's like uh john realizes what this is and he says and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia that's a that's a long way so this is a very terrible and gory picture. Judgment is terrible. How terrible? Well, the judgment for the lost is eternal conscious torment in hell. And this is one of the most uh, difficult passages or parts, truths of the scripture that's uh, most difficult for people to receive. The place of eternal conscious torment notice what it says in verses 9 through 11 and another angel a third followed them saying with a loud voice if anyone worships the beast 
And remember, worshiping the beast was uh, continuing to worship yourself, worshiping your own desires, following your own way, rejecting God, giving into all sorts of, of wickedness and evil. That's what this worshiping of the beast and following its image and receives its mark on his a forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers, worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Notice how it contrasts with what happens in verse 8. There's the announcement, Babylon the great, she who made the nations drink the wine of her passions. God says what ends up happening is you'll end up be, be drinking the wine of, of his wrath because you're following Satan and all of the evil that he would want, want humanity to do. And they will have no rest, it says, these worshipers of the beast, which contrasts with the rest that the those who follow the lamb will get. Notice what verse 13 says in blessed indeed, says the spirit. They may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. This is the probably the most difficult of um, truths of scripture for people to receive these images of torment, fire, smoke, torment. It's the most neglected teaching today, I think, in the church. And, and for, it's understandable why. This is not very pleasant. This is what uh, J.I. Packer has to say. The sentimental secularism of modern Western culture with its exalted optimism about human nature, its shrunken idea of God, and its skepticism as to whether personal morality really matters. In other words... Its decay of conscience makes it hard for Christians to take the reality of hell seriously. The revelation of hell in scripture assumes a depth of insight into divine holiness and human and demonic sinfulness that most of us do not have. However, the doctrine of hell appears in the New Testament as a Christian essential and we are called to try and understand it as Jesus and his apostles did. Some Christians today uh, have tried to push the limits on minimizing this teaching. And some have tried to ignore um, this teaching and tried to instead direct our attention to focus on Jesus' teaching about living the kingdom of God. The problem is that the most detailed the most frequent references to the grimness and goriness of reality of hell come from the mouth of Jesus himself. Jesus speaks more directly and vividly of the reality of hell than any Old Testament prophet or any New Testament possible. Jesus is the one where we get most of the teaching about this doctrine. And the Bible describes this, this place Lots of different terms. Let me just kind of give you a, a sketch here that it's not just in this passage. It's elsewhere. Matthew, uh, Jesus himself and Matthew describes the, it as a place of outer darkness. Again, he describes it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
In the parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus describes it as, as being in uh, Hades, which is the place of the dead or the, gr- the, uh, the grave, and being in torment. It's a place of torment. It's a lake of fire and sulfur that we saw in this passage. Also, we see in Revelation 20. It's described as, as the hell of fire. The place with unquenchable fire. Jude describes it as the punishment of eternal fire. And Jesus quoting from Isaiah says where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And as we see in Revelation, it's where they, meaning the the devil and all of his demons and his angels, they will be gathered together and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then lest we think that this is limited to to just them. Just the devil. He goes on a few verses later and says, and if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this eternal conscious torment. What's worse is that it's self-chosen. Now, some will go, well, what about these, this, this symbolism? Like, how could it be a place of outer darkness and have fire, right? Well, yes, sure, there's, there's obviously pulling a lot of symbolic elements from the world in which we can understand this otherworldly place, of course. Uh, but don't think that the, the symbolism minimizes the reality. The multiplicity of all of those symbols is to convey the seriousness of it. You can't you can't look at these depictions and then go, well, they're symbolic. Therefore, they're not. Maybe it's not that bad. Uh, That would be um, they're there to make you think it's at least that bad. Packer goes on, he says. Especially along this idea that it's that this is self-chosen. Okay. He says those in hell will realize that they sentence themselves to it. By loving darkness rather than light. Choosing not to have their creator as their Lord. Preferring self-indulgent sin to self-denying righteousness. And if they encountered the gospel, rejecting Jesus rather than coming to him. Hell hell is self-chosen. And friends, I would just make an appeal to all of you. Don't choose it. Don't choose it. When God has provided his own son to save you from it. Choose Christ. Choose Christ. So it's a judgment of the the lost is eternal conscious torment in hell. But he goes on to talk about the reward for those who persevere. Verses 12 and 13. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. 
Remember, John is writing this into the midst of a church that is experiencing a great deal of persecution. He's described this as the beast going after the, the other offspring of this woman. They're, the beast is going after the church and persecuting the church, which was a reality in that day. Kind of ostracized from society. Where the temptation to not follow Jesus was very strong. And he says this, in view of all of this, the judgment, uh, the grace of the gospel and the judgment of the gospel. He says, uh, keep your faith in Jesus. Those who die in the Lord from now on are blessed, he says. So there's a reward for those who persevere. And perseverance leads to praise in the end. I, this is why we included the reading into chapter 15, because this is actually all part of the kind of the same vision and same sequence. And this is the, the final scene of this long episode between chapter 12 through 14 into 15. And it's setting up the next series of sevens, the seven bowls of, of God's wrath. Notice what it says, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So it's got pictured of it being started here, and then coming is the very end. And then notice what it says in verses 2 and 3. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb. Now, why the song of Moses? You'd have to go and see Exodus chapter 15, because right after God had brought Israel out of their bondage of slavery, right after they crossed the Red Sea and right after the sea collapsed in on Pharaoh and his army, they sing this amazing song. Anyone see the prince of Egypt, you know? Okay, watch it again. Fast forward to that spot and the song that they sing. They actually are pulling those passages right out of Exodus 15. So when you see the song of Moses, this is what that's is referring to. The song of deliverance of God graciously saving them in the midst of judgment, right? But then he continues. Um, and, and here I want to close with some final thoughts on this severity, the severity of the image, the images of judgment depicted here. These grim and gory pictures. Some think that this teaching of the eternal conscious torment in hell, this undermines the love of God. That the judgment de depicted here is, is disproportionate. I've, I've, heard, I've heard some, um, even uh, Christians in the church kind of say this. Teachers say this just is disproportionate. The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, right? How can a loving God punish someone forever for finite sins committed in this life? You ever heard that question? Okay. Um, I think the best answer to that, the most humble answer I could give to that, is that Scripture's view of God's punishment isn't too strong. Their view of the severity of their sins is too weak. The Scripture's view of God's punishment isn't too strong. Their view of the severity of our, quote, finite sins is far too weak. Our sins are much greater than that. Yet despite the severity of our sins, and just remind ourselves of this, 
despite the severity and the greatness of our sins, through faith in Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, we have forgiveness for all of those sins. And so we must have confidence. Friends, we must have confidence that God, who is perfect in knowledge and in truth and in wisdom and in justice and in holiness, these, these attributes of who God is, we need to have confidence in them that in the, based on that, his knowledge, his truth, his justice, his wisdom, his righteousness, that he will do what is right. And this is how they end. The saved worshiping the holiness and justice of God. Verses 3 and 4. Here's the song. He calls it the song of Moses, the servant of God. And then he says, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? What a, what a great question. When you realize that this, this severity of this punishment that is coming, and yet God gives the lifeline. God himself gives the lifeline. And he doesn't give you a 20-step process of you know, penance and whatever you need to do. It's a gift. He's giving it to you. Who would not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. We have confidence that God who is perfect in knowledge and in truth and in wisdom and in justice and in holiness will do what is right. So some questions for us this morning. If you're a believer in Christ... This passage gives in the middle of it the, the main point for, for those of us who claim faith in Christ. And that is keep going. Remain steadfast. Persevere in Christ. That's you see in verses 12 and 13. This here is a call for the endurance of the saints. And secondly, I would say for believers, know that even in the midst of these terrible depictions and imagery, know that God is just and that his judgment is righteous. He will do what is right. For unbelievers, I would say, hear and listen. Heed the warning. God is just, and his justice is righteous. And if you don't receive the gift that he's giving you of escape and salvation, you won't escape. Turn to Christ. Turn to the one who rescues you from his wrath. Fear God, it says. Give him glory and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Father God, we...
May we be like Isaiah says at the end of his his book. May we tremble at your word. God, we've heard difficult, difficult things. We've been given um, very difficult pictures to see and to imagine. And God, may we take these words seriously. May we remain faithful to Christ and hold fast to him even, even if difficult times come our way. God, may we, when it comes to these, this teaching about um, hell, may we trust and be assured of your nature and your character and your attributes, that you are just and that you will do what is just. And God, may it stir us to go out with this news of the gospel to share with others. That we come not to an announce a prosperity gospel. We don't go out to announce God uh, an improve your life plan. That we go to announce a message that God, you save us through your son. So God, make us uh, messengers of that. announcers of that gospel so that people would hear and believe. And God, I pray that all um, of those that we know in our circles of influence and in our, our homes and our communities, um, God, I pray that they would come to see the truth of the grace that we have in Christ, that they would avoid your punishment, that they would repent of of their own wicked ways and and seek to follow the ways of of you, their creator, how you created them to be. God, we thank you for your word. It's in Christ's mighty name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Let's uh, stand for our closing benediction. So, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have through the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.